The celebration of All Saints has a long history, but at this point in history, we celebrate not only the particularly sanctified, but all those being sanctified, every one of us being made the people we were created to be, living and dead, a distinctive community, the communion of saints. For many, this celebration is part and parcel of enjoying a lively sense of a spiritual realm intermingled with this one, or an imagination that knows of thin places between the spirit world and our own. Some sense of a spiritual realm gives rise to the kind of imaginative universes that bring us Halloween on one hand and Harry Potter's wizard world on the other. We're celebrating a communion of the living together with those who have gone before as a single beloved community in the sight and the mind and the heart of God. Well, whether or not our imaginations do in fact take us to some kind of spiritual realm, we have something in common with ages past, and that is that we share the idea of a communion of saints as a distinctive community, distinct from many other options around us. If you have friends in Europe then and friends who practice Christian faith, there are not many of them, but if you have one, they will tell you that it is very distinctive, in fact unusual, to practice the faith in any sustained way. Same is becoming true in much of this country. You probably know that the Pacific Northwest is sometimes referred to as the nun zone, not because of a surfeit of religious sisters, but because so many people check none on their religious preference box in surveys. For many of us, it might be true that the majority of our friends belong to a church even if they don't go very often, but our younger members will tell us that they are unusual among many of their friend groups because they belong to a church, because they belong to a distinctive community and engage spiritual practices like worship and generosity like serving others. For much of recent history, but certainly since the 1960s, the assumption of many congregations, many churches, is that worship is the most important and distinctive of our practices, and that worship needs to be vibrant and energetic and authentic and attractive. And if worship is right, then people will want to join us. We can invite others to worship with us, and they would quickly realize just how much they wanted to be part of this vibrant community and so on. Today is one of those days I trust. I've certainly been bragging on our musicians and our flower guild and inviting people who do not normally attend worship to join us. But even here, even here in the southeastern United States, things are changing. What we will see in the future is going to be less and less, I believe, about attractive worship and more and more about attractive Christians. That means us who bear the mark of Christ will be the witnesses to the Gospels, will be the evangelists, will be the tellers of the story, and we will be formed in worship for life. We're going to see less and less emphasis on getting people to church where they can and might perhaps receive some intimation of God, the reality of God, and more and more emphasis on people being drawn to our distinctive story and practices because of the authenticity of our lives, because of the integrity of our lives shown and marked first in the way we give ourselves away in serving others. In the future, it will be our service that is of first interest to the world around us rather than our worship. 
In the future, I believe, as in the past, God's gracious invitation is and ever has been an invitation to life before church, to love before doctrine, to communities of meaning and life-giving practice before rules and regulations, to grace before law. Of course, we will continue to worship in various configurations, even if it looks very different than what we do today. We will continue to turn or be turned toward that which is of ultimate worth, toward that which really matters through telling and enacting the story around the table. And in the future, as in the past, what we do in worship will, as often as not, need to be made real in our lives the rest of the time and not simply real in the worship itself. And so as we practice today, our prayer and our praise, confession, and so on, is a formal expression of the movements and seasons of rhythms that occur elsewhere in our lives. This community, this community that we embody and celebrate here is an expression of what is being made real at some other place, the place where we belong, the friends who will care for us in times of trial and the friends for whom we will care, the people where we are known and who we know. That happens elsewhere. It's expressed and celebrated here, but it doesn't happen in the worship itself. Now, a commercial video in the middle of this requiem would strike a wrong note, but I've been very struck by a clip on YouTube that perhaps some of you have seen called Every Life Has a Story. It's created for a fast food concern to to train their customer service people to really recognize and, and recognize the humanity of their customers. And we see variously a woman sitting a widow on what would have been her 50th anniversary mourning her husband's death. We see an immigrant who's been here for years and has just received her citizenship. We see a young girl whose mother died in childbirth and whose father blames her. We see a couple who struggle with infertility, a man cancer-free for the first time in a long time, another man whose only son has been deployed overseas to a war zone, and a young woman who's been admitted to the college of her dreams, and on and on and on. And the clip concludes just saying every life has a story if we will but learn to read it. Now, encouraging employees of the restaurant to treat their customers with respect and compassion is a good thing. And in one sense, what we see in that clip is representative of any gathering of humans, including this one. Hundreds of stories. We all have stories about our lives. But we know that reading the stories of others must be more than aspirational. It necessarily involves our willingness to share those intimate stories of our lives in communities of hope and trust and love. We know that self-disclosure on our part begets self-disclosure on the part of others. The community that we enact and celebrate here, the communion of saints, is only as real as the lives we have shared elsewhere. Because if it's not, we might just as well go to a fast food restaurant where someone has been trained to be kind to us. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying communion has to be real. Our service begins with listening to one another, listening to those around us, listening to our neighbors, 
because that's the beginning of gospel, sharing our life, serving in any way we can, and then gathering almost as a private matter for reminder, for restoration, for renewal, gathering for remembrance in which we are remembered and cared for, nurtured, and put back together again for life. In the future, it's going to be more about us, more about our lives, more about our service, more about our authenticity. So blessed are you when you know the grace of God. Blessed are you when you sing and make music. Blessed are you when you tell your story and first listen to the stories of others. Blessed are you when you mourn, when your heart is broken, when you remember those who have gone before. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for peace in this world. Blessed are you when you embody the peace of Christ. Blessed are you when you share life and break bread with your neighbor. Blessed are you when you are poor or when you are weak or when you are meek or when you are merciful. Blessed are you in the midst of this reality, the communion of saints, living and dead, now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.